Good morning, everyone. I hope that's loud enough for you. Can you hear me okay? Is it too loud? All right, I'm never too loud. Thank you for that affirmation. Uh, please know of the deep gratitude that Joan and I have for your care, for the many expressions of love. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. She came home Tuesday night from the hospital, uh, resting well, and you continued to care for us, and we continue to see her progressing a little bit every day, and so thank you. You have been so generous in so many ways, and we are truly blessed by your love and care, and we look forward to uh, having her back with us here uh, in worship. She misses being here, um, and so she is ready to be back here when it's okay for her to be back here. So thanks be to God um, for his provision for us. Just also want to say, I am looking forward to Easter Sunday. If there's ever a time when we need to hear and celebrate the story of the resurrection, this is the time. And to that end, we're going to do two services outdoors in front of the crosses in front of the tombs, one at 7.30, one at 9.30, and we will have a wondrous day of worship. Uh, some of our worshiping communities will be joining us for those worship services, and so I invite you to come. I invite you to invite someone to come with you, and perhaps uh, for those of you who are worshiping at home, uh, that might be a day when you begin to return to in-person worship with us and celebrate that time. Last Easter, last year was a glorious time of regathering as we gathered for the first time in person for Sunday morning worship in quite a long time. And we continue to regather, if you will. Every week, some more folks come back to be in person and we welcome you to that. Also recognize that if you're not ready, that's okay as well. But we do welcome you to worship whether you're with us in person here in the sanctuary or online. And so may God bless you. Next Sunday, Dr. Mary Paul will be with us preaching. And uh, I, I remember very, very clearly one of you coming to me after my election as senior pastor in October saying, you know, you're pretty good, but I really like Mary Paul. <laughs> and uh, I won't call any names, but... Uh, can I just tell you that's okay with me? It truly is okay with me. We are blessed to have a strong preaching team. Pastor Brad, Pastor Allie, Dr. Mary Paul, and others who join us from time to time. And say thanks be to God for that. Um, I am not at all threatened by their giftedness. In fact, I usually just pat myself on the back and say, who's the genius that scheduled them? And so that's the space we live in and collaborate in around here and grateful to all of you for your care for each person who shares the responsibility of bringing the word to us on Sunday morning. We come this morning to the book of Ezra. I invite you to turn to the book of Ezra. And as we continue our journey in the story of God across the breadth of scripture, we come this morning to the book that is named after me. You didn't know that, did you? My full legal name is Joseph Ezra Watkins III. 
That is a strong name, right? It is a name that is a family name. My father carried that name, my grandfather. And so I'm grateful for that name. Grateful for the strength of that middle name. And so grateful for the life of Ezra. So this morning we're going to explore the life and times of Ezra because the life and times of Ezra were not simple, they were complicated times. And the book of Ezra originally was with the book of Nehemiah, one book in the Hebrew Bible. They've been separated by those who developed the canon of Scripture for us. But today we come to the book of Ezra that brings us to the restoration of Israel following the 70-year exile that had been predicted by a number of prophets, including Jeremiah, who knew ahead of time this would happen because the people of Israel had fallen away from God. They'd fallen away from keeping the word of God, the law of God. And Jeremiah and other prophets predicted God's judgment upon Israel for that failure to follow the law of God. And so at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar II, many of the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon. And here it is in Ezra now, that we see the return of the people from exile. And so it is that in Ezra we find the story of Zerubbabel who under the movement of God's hand in the life of the king at the time sent Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the second rebuilding of the temple. Biblical history tells us there were three rebuilding, three buildings of the temple. The first one by Solomon, the second one by Zerubbabel, and the third one actually by King Herod before the birth of Christ. And so we have this activity taking place. And in the second part of Ezra, Ezra returns with another remnant of the people of Israel to Jerusalem to restore the worship, to restore the people of God to the law of God. Then in the book of Nehemiah, we have the third phase of the return from the exile in which Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so this morning, as we come to the life and times of Ezra, let's read the opening statement from Ezra chapter seven, verses one through 10, that will introduce us to the life and times of Ezra. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Atab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bucky, the son of Abusha, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given the king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, for, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. 
For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Think about that introduction and what it means when Ezra says about himself, I was sent because God had moved the hand of, the, of King Artaxerxes to let us go back. I think it's important for us to note that in the life and times of Ezra, that God was at work in the life of someone who did not worship that God, but to, but to benefit the people of God. Sometimes God uses people who are not people of God to benefit the people of God. We should never lose sight of that movement of God. And it's evident throughout this book of how that begins. And it's important for us to note that the revival that comes in Jerusalem in the book of Ezra comes and begins in a foreign place outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, with someone who does not worship God. Let us not lose sight of where revival can begin. It often begins and sprouts from the most unusual places, through the most unusual people. Ezra reminds us that he was a descendant of the high priest of the first temple of Jerusalem. And he had a long history of leading the people of God in worship, and so it was no strange thing for the people to look to him as a leader. And he led the second wave home. As I read through Ezra several times in the past two weeks, I began to notice a common theme, a common statement in these verses in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Verse 6 for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse nine, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Verse 28, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors who has put it into the king's heart. Verse 29, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And in chapter eight, verse 18, because the good hand of our God was on us. In 8.22, the good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. And in 8.31, the hand of our God was on us. Now I learned as a child growing up that when my mother repeated something several times, I should listen. Obviously, I was not as bright as all of you who listened the very first time to your mothers. But when I see this repetition of this theme, the hand of God was upon me, was upon us, it seems like we should pay attention to that. So I want to suggest that these eight observations matter. They matter first because they are the early statements of Ezra as a person, as a leader, and reflect the activity of God on behalf of an exiled people. 
Second, they matter because think about what it would have been like to have been in exile. The exile, we're told by biblical historians, lasted approximately seven years, a gener 70 years, a generation. But I'm going to guess that if you and I had been exiled, we, like them, would have been asking some questions like, how long, O oh Lord, will we be in exile? And some of us would have been asking or even suggesting that maybe God had forgotten about us. And even others of us would have gone to the even farther extent to say, God has abandoned us because we have not heard from God. Some would have questioned if there would be a deliverance for them. Was this judgment upon them permanent? Will God revisit us with a gracious second exodus? They had the story of the first exodus out of Egypt. They were hoping for a second exodus out of Babylon. But Ezra's repetitive use of some form of the hand of God, I think, reflects God's remembrance of Israel following the judgment that God had imposed upon them for their disobedience. Ezra's eight observations about the activity of God are further reflected in his prayer in chapter 9. If you still have your Bible open, let's look at chapter 9 together. Verses 6 through 15, this magnificent prayer of Ezra, chapter nine of Ezra, beginning at verse six. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us as a remnant, remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the command you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Will you not be angry enough with us to destroy us 
leaving us no remnant or survivor. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. This magnificent prayer, which is also, I think, part prayer and part sermon. Have you ever heard someone pray a sermon? I've heard a few in my time. But when we review all of the landscape of life that Ezra covers in this prayer, he acknowledges God's gracious judgment. He acknowledges God's gracious deliverance. He confesses the tendency of the people of this community of faith to sin and to sin repeatedly. And he acknowledges that God has not been as harsh on them as their sin deserved. And so here is this magnificent prayer. But if you go on and read the rest of this story, and you move on into chapter 10, it gets a little complicated. Because out of this prayer, because the people had intermarried against the law of God, there becomes this rising decree that all who had intermarried should divorce the women they had married. And that comes after we hear the stories of Rahab, after we hear the stories of Ruth and Boaz, it comes in the face of the words of the prophet Malachi who said God hates divorce. And so this gets really complicated. Now I have a confession to make. I don't have an answer for that complication. See, scripture doesn't always leave us with simple answers. Scripture sometimes leaves us with the complexity and the messiness of life and doesn't tell us whether this is right or wrong because we have no evidence that God told Ezra to do this. And some of us would respond and say, yes, but it was the law and the law had to be followed. It was the most obvious example of their disobedience and so perhaps Ezra focused on that but you go on into chapter 10 and the people say we can't all do this there are too many of us and so let our elders care for this and we'll handle it this way but the scripture does not give us any indication about whether or not there was care and provision for the women who were suddenly left without providers. And what about the children? Should anybody care about the children impacted by this declaration? But on the other hand, I also wanna say it is a good thing that we seek to be pure and holy before God. 
So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I am in the dark about how it is that the wives and children impacted by the degree of divorce in chapter 10 are cared for. And you may have more light than I do on this. But it's complex, isn't it? And it leaves us sometimes in scripture with more questions than answers. One of my professors at Point Loma, Dr. Reuben Welch, sometimes when a student would ask a question, he'd say, I don't know. Sometimes the wisest, brightest thing you can say is, I don't know. But we have to also be careful because too often the church has rushed in to give a simple black and white declarative response to a complex situation and ended up creating more confusion and more harm and more woundedness. And sometimes I don't know is the healthiest answer we can give. While I have great discomfort with the decree to divorce, I have some comfort with Ezra's posture because he seeks a place of humility. He falls on his face. He confesses the community's sin. And it's not, notice in the words of his prayer, it's not their sin, it's our sin. For when the community offends, it's community sin. So let me make some observations, and, and I, I, I recognize you will not be greatly blessed that I don't have this all figured out. But persons in the community of faith are often fallible purveyors of God's grace. In other words, people in the community of faith don't always get it right when it comes to being people of grace. We okay there? Is it possible this is one of those? <laughs> by the way, God is not threatened by our questions. I remember some months ago, Pastor Dave preaching an outstanding message on doubt. So let me just say to you, 
If you have questions, be at peace with your questions. Uh, Communities of faith sometimes believe that they do better than they really do. So let me ask you a question. What would you do if you were responsible for this? What would you do for the women and the children who are impacted by this divorce decree? Would you just leave them to their own devices? Would you send them outside the city limits of Pasadena and say, out of sight, out of mind? Would you be someone who would say, we need to find a way to make provision for these people, for these women who now have no one to provide for them? Remember the cultural context. The cultural context was not the context of today. There were not ready ways for women to go earn a living. And so here we are with this dilemma, this conundrum presented to us in the scripture because you can't go through the book of Ezra authentically and say, oh, it was great and ignore this problem. Because in authenticity, we have to say, we have this concern here and we're not sure what to do about it. How do we respond? Why does this problem matter to me? It matters to me because I have been in the church long enough to have seen people in the community of faith or people seeking to be in a community of faith wounded by the community of faith. I have seen people wounded by a community of faith or individuals in a community of faith because someone in the community of faith being well-meaning thought there should be some level of purity and some level of exact response to something in particular. Years ago, I sat in a service. I was a pastor of student ministries in a congregation in Phoenix, Arizona. I sat in a service and the the, the women were giving reports from women's retreat. And our pastor evangelism stood next to a woman in the pulpit. And this woman confessed how during the retreat she came to Jesus. And had committed her life to Jesus. And said, I'm living with a man. That's problematic for some folks. Some folks say, move out now. But there are children. Some folks said, we hear you, sister. The Spirit will guide you. And over time, and the gracious provision of God and the graciousness of the community of faith, that was resolved. They married, 
And so here we are. And it may be that you have been wounded by a community of faith or someone in a community of faith. It may be that I have wounded you. If I have wounded you, come to me. Let's meet and reconcile and pray. But it seems to me, while I don't have an answer for the dilemma posed in the book of Ezra, it seems to me we do have the privilege of returning to the place in humility before God to say, I have no answers, but I will seek God's provision. I have been wounded by a member of the community of faith, but the community of faith is not the presence of God in the way I'd hoped it would be, but I'm going to return to the presence of God, even though the community of faith has harmed me and disappointed me. Joan and I have one testimony, only one. All we know is God has provided. That's what I know to be true. That's what I know to be true. And if, if you've been wounded and hurt today, or you are living with stress and whatever else is going on in your life, borrow that testimony. Let me loan it to you. Let me loan you some hope. Let me loan you the beginning of healing. Because what we don't find in Ezra, nobody abandons God in this. And so I think what we have in the book of Ezra is an incomplete story. We don't have all of the details of what happened, but it is beyond my comprehension that the God of grace and mercy would have abandoned those people. I don't know that to be the case, but I don't know it not to be the case. Because I have seen plenty of evidence in the lives of people where they have returned to the provision of God and God has made provision and God has seen them through and God has not forgotten them. Now, I want to be very careful here. I don't want to just give a simple answer to an unanswerable question. Because sometimes in giving simple answers to difficult questions, we create harm and more harm. So here we are with a dilemma. And so I pose you the question again. If it were your responsibility or you were in that space would you have done anything for those wives and those children? Or would you have taken the picture and say, well, they made their own bed, now let them sleep in it? That somehow seems incongruent to the call of God to show mercy. It somehow seems incongruent to me to the grace and mercy God has extended to us if we would not extend grace and mercy to others. 
remember, we're talking about the story of God and we're talking about how God acts in our lives in the long arc of God's story. And that, by the way, that long arc of God's story extends well beyond your lifetime. that the activity of God that's at work in you could well extend well beyond your lifetime. And in fact, what, that is exactly what I hope for with my life. That my life be lived in a way and a posture with a posture of being a vessel of God's grace and mercy that the story of God's ark in my life goes well beyond my presence, physical presence on this earth. Yesterday, Pastor Brad and I met with 23 of you all and we talked about chapters one and two of the book Growing Young. We had a great conversation, by the way. You're welcome to join that conversation. We'll announce when the next meeting is. But it was a stimulating conversation. One of the illustrations in the book talked about how a young woman was cared for in a church because of the actions of a pastor decades before in that church, a 150-year-old church. See, that's the arc of God's story. And the arc of God's story is not necessarily dependent upon the evidence before us in a given moment. The arc of God's story is independent of our particular circumstance in a given moment. And so what I think the book of Ezra says to me this morning is that God's call upon us in this space where we don't have an answer for this very difficult problem is that we are called to live patiently faithful and incredibly gracious as the people of God. Because in John 14, 15, and 16, we are told by Jesus that the Holy Spirit will teach, remind, convict, judge. And so we have the work of God's gracious presence through the Holy Spirit to do that stuff. And that says to us, we can be gracious and we can be authentic and acknowledge our failures, and we can be authentic and say, we don't always get it right, and sometimes we hurt people. And if we have, forgive us. Because it's not an I-me issue, it's a community of faith, confession. One of the great themes of this book, Growing Young, is do you know what matters more to young people than almost anything else? Authenticity. Authenticity. Right next to that is relationship. They want relationship with authentic people. 
who say, it's not always easy and sometimes it's tough and sometimes I don't get it right, but I'm here, I'm still here and I'm gonna be here when you don't get it right and I don't get it right, let's be here together. That's grace. And that's exactly what we learn in the book of Ezra about the story of God because God keeps showing up and saying, I'm still here and I'm still gonna be here. And so as a community of faith, as a follower of God, that's our space. Because when you come through authenticity and you come through grace, guess what? A lot of the stuff we think is important doesn't matter anymore. It becomes less about past and preservation and style of this or preference for that and more about Relationship. Relationship. And relationship is built on authenticity and trust. We okay? If you're not okay, it's okay not to be okay. Let's just be authentic about it. It's okay to say, you know, I, you really stretch me. I'm not sure I agree with you. That's okay too. It's always okay to me if you want to be wrong. It's okay. <laughs> well, I think enough's been said. I think I've been uncomfortable enough today. My discomfort is your discomfort, by the way. Because quite frankly, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with chapter 10. I'm uncomfortable with how they dealt with it. I understand it, I understand the why of it. Could I just say I don't like the how of it? And I say that with full trust that God's not threatened by my question. Let's stand together. Would you receive this benediction? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you asking for your hand of support with difficult questions. You, are our refuge and strength. You are our present help in time of trouble. And so we ask, hold our hands, do not let us fall. Our trust is in your love which never fails and your power that knows no boundaries. Be our guide as we leave this place. We ask these things in the name of the gracious, loving God. And everyone said, amen. amen. Go with hope, my friends.